0: Hello, and welcome to Culture, Sex, Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to be joined by a couple of guests. Uh, so, uh, Laura Scaroni, uh, sorry, I'm going to do that all, I'm going to keep this in. Laura Scaroni Bonom, welcome, Laura. Thank you. Michael Bt, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you. And
0: you've written a uh, book Um Gender affirming therapy? Actually, have I got the name of the book right? Gender affirming therapy? Yes. <laughs> I'm so prepared. <laughs> uh, alongside co author Sky Davies. Uh, sorry, sorry, Sky Davis. I checked all of this out before, dear listener. I was so good. And then I pressed record and then I started panicking. Co okay, right. Uh, Gender affirming therapy with Sky Davis, um, who can't be here today, but uh, they uh, were an integral part of writing the book. So mm-hmm. thanks for them too. Mm-hmm. um thank you so much for joining me on the show and thank you first and foremost for writing this really amazing book like really genuinely really great book an incredibly useful resource which is you know not just kind of um retelling the problems with uh gender and in, in society but actually giving uh therapists who this book is written for an incredibly useful um set of tools and resources to help them in their work to help their clients gender to emerge so I think everyone's going kind to of love the book so thank you so much for writing the book
2: thank you for reading yeah.
0: it yeah well, it's thank- to get that feedback thank you for sending me a copy as well you know part of the reason I do the podcast is so I get to read all these books without having to pay for them so uh, <laughs> that's that's also great um so um kind of as we were talking about just before we started recording i don't want this to be just a uh an episode just aimed at therapists obviously i do have therapists who listen to the show but we have a very broad kind of contingent of listeners um so we're going to kind of uh, so dear listener we're not going to talk about uh uh this isn't just going to be at therapists if you're not a therapist hopefully you'll find this conversation really useful so um let's start with the question of you know what's the background of how you came to write the book and where you how you came to write this book, um, mm-hmm. Laura, Michael, whoever would like to start?
2: So, uh, Michael and I uh, met at the London Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic mm-hmm. many, many years ago. Yeah. And um, I guess this is a work love story kind of thing, because, <laughs> uh, you know, from the moment we met, we, we really clicked and, we've really became a a supporting, you know, peer for one another. So we would come back from sessions and perhaps be a little bit confused or stressed or even glad the certain steps had been taken by our clients. And we sort of would share it in that sort of peer supervision level and learn and understand what it was all about. Hmm. But also, I think that we were both uh, in an agreement that We found the field of gender sometimes to be a little bit difficult, Mm -hmm. even with other professionals working at the same level. I think these attacks within, you know, what is it that people are doing in terms of uh, therapy, assessment, access to interventions, this gets to the core of people working in the field. And so you can feel a little bit insecure and you can feel judged by your peers. So I guess that we found a little bit of a safe heaven uh, in each other's company and an ability to speak openly, to uh, admit when we were getting things wrong, to try and understand how to how to do it. And so a couple of years ago now, it must have been, uh, Michael and I delivered a training together, one of many that, that we've done, one of our collaborations, and we were approached by the Open University Press to write a book. And this is how it all came about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael had already written a wonderful book uh, published by Jessica Kingsley in gender affirming therapy, Um, and it was an excellent guide, uh, but I sort of challenged Michael for us to do something that was a little bit more personal, where we could Mm -hmm. put our own experiences as therapists in the book Mm -hmm. and where we could sort of uh, taking inspiration from a broad variety of uh, wonderful people from John Barker, Alexian Mm Taffy, Irving Yalom, you know, where you not only learn about what is happening, but it's also communicated in a very one-on-one level and you see the person in the book. So I guess that that's the whole inspiration that that we took Mm -hmm. and um, understanding that we are not trans ourselves with both a cisgender man and cisgender woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were really, really keen to... To tell that this is not our, uh, say, this is not something we made out. This is what our clients were telling us that was working and was positive for them when they were interacting in therapy. Um, so that's how it came about. I don't know if Michael wants to add anything to that.
1: Yeah, I think um, that pretty much pretty much covers quite a lot of the the how the thing came to to be. Um, I think that certainly for both Lara and I, and, and for the colleagues that we had and have who who work in the field, there was something about wanting to have something like this when we were starting out. Because <clears throat> not only are there quite a lot of assumptions generally made in um, uh, gender care, we both kind of come from an NHS background, um, where it's assumed that you know certain things. I mean, you're given a certain amount of detailed training about you know what different drugs are called or what different mm-hmm. operations are called and so on but in terms of like really understanding what we mean by gender and being kind of positioned in it, there isn't really anything around so we sort of wanted to write something that we we wish we'd had when we were starting out mm-hmm. that could be of use to to um to other people um and i think that that was a um, a kind of a a key part of it um and that I suppose also that we wanted, as Laura was saying, to put ourselves in it um, mm. and to um, to feel like it was a bit more personal. Um, something Laura touched on, I'm sure we're, we're going to come back to it, is there's a lot of fear around gender. Um, not only is it in the whole kind of public discourse, and we see it throughout the kind of culture wars and all this sort of thing, um, but it's brought in by clients when they come into the clinic they approach many of the clients we talked to would, would approach the clinic with dread. And that that kind of anxiety then there's a parallel process and all the clinicians get a lot of anxiety. And so the whole thing is kind of suffused with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I suppose, you know, um to to put it to put it mildly, there was a whole kind of, it's a bit like um RuPaul's drag race, mm-hmm. you know, good luck and don't fuck it up. You know, right. and there, there was a kind of a sense of like, you know, you could, this could go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was really kind of anxious and it, it makes it very difficult to then think creatively or gently yeah. about things. And I suppose that's something that we wanted from this book to sort of lower the heat a bit.
0: That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um... I find in sex education that the the anxieties we have around sex education often cause people to revert to a kind of a, a very narrow normative kind of sex education. Because I think, well, that means I cannot, can't get it wrong. So if I'm just teaching kids, uh, don't have sex because you might get pregnant there are loads of STIs you should be scared of, here's how to use a condom, this is the law, then I'm I'm getting it right. But then obviously that's terrible sex education. So I wonder, I'm, I'm imagining it's probably a similar thing going on with gender affirming therapy or any kind of um, therapy to come to venture around gender is that that reversion to type and the norms that we need to unpack and you know, that, that actually we need to talk about with gender, uh, that make up gender is, is really, really important which i think leads on to the next question really which is basically well you know what's happening now why is this book necessary and important now um Mm -hmm. and what might people get from it now i suppose from my reading of it and i really enjoy that you're talking about irving yalong um i love the irving yalong quotes uh i wrote it down in my notes because i enjoyed it so much uh the drive to explain is an epidemic um so mm. I'm really, I'm really into it. And that kind of the thing that Yalom puts into his books where he is there, he is there with the clients and you're literally sitting in the room with him. It really, now you can mention it, your book really reminded me of that. So we're hoping that it's, so there is this tension with people working uh, in therapeutic settings around gender and there's a tension um, around gender generally, but mm. why else do you think is it, Book is important right now. What? Um, what? Why do we need this book right now?
1: Well, I suppose I maybe I would I would um, lead on from what I was just sharing. Um, I feel that the the conversation around gender. I'm, I'm speaking very much from a British perspective, and mm-hmm. maybe some of um, the listeners would would be from <clears throat> other kind of places and backgrounds, but. I first started working in gender. I first had my clinical placement there as a student in 2010. And the the way that gender was going seemed to be towards um, a, a more positive, more pluralistic, more open, less frightened kind of space. Mm-hmm. And things have really changed, I feel, in you know 13 years on. It feels like we're in a lot worse position than we were 13 years ago. It kind of got better than it got a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And so there is something going on in public discourse around culture wars that I think is is really poisonous for all kinds of um all kinds of gender and sexuality, diverse populations and just being different is 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 problematic. What was seen as being like, okay, well, we've won a certain amount of hard won freedoms, you know, whether that be from a legislative point of view and so on, then they're like, actually, we might change our mind and go back um and that what has been achieved is not necessarily secure so that kind of unstable ground thing i think is is contributing to anxiety um and so therefore having something that could um try to normalize and say this is not this is not strange this is what all you know we all have a gender identity it's all you know gender is is everywhere let's kind of try and have a conversation about it that's less frightened or frightening i suppose mm-hmm. is is kind of one part
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that has been, I guess, a, a, a recurrent point of conversation for Michael and I because as we were brainstorming the book, and you know, as Mark Michael was doing a lot of the editing, um, just keeping an eye on my Spanishness, uh, not you know, <laughs> translating it correctly to English and so on. the Spanish, um, <laughs> the, the Spanish was coming through the book, uh, but um. We thought about it, you know, I think as therapists, particularly, there's a part of the book when I said, you know, we're being told almost in a way, forget about yourself, you shouldn't self disclose, you shouldn't be too present, you shouldn't, and the same happens with our agenda. And the same happens when we work with any element of intersectionality, right? If you are a white person working with a person uh, of colour, of any other background, it's almost like, no, a colour doesn't exist. Well, it does exist. It's part of that dynamic. Let's acknowledge it. Let's understand it. Let's see how it feels. So I guess that we've both been thinking a lot about what it means to to us to be a man or a woman, you know. for mm-hmm. myself working in this field has been fascinating uh, to sort of remember how much of a tomboy I used to be
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: many of the narratives that my clients brought to me I also used to run away and cut my hair short and not tell my mom and then Mm -hmm. my mom would be upset at the hairdresser because why did you let her do that Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so there was an experimentation and I think Once you open that in a way that is not stigmatizing, a lot of people suddenly realize and relate. Mm. And this is also something that I've heard from parents of trans folk and non-binary folk where they say, I was too a bit of a tomboy or I've always been considered a feminine person, but I don't let myself be that way outside of home. Um, So we felt it was needed for everyone. We sort of targeted at therapies and mental health professionals and healthcare professionals in general yeah. because because at an individual level i am very saddened every time one of my clients say i went to the psychiatrist and they misgender me throughout and i came out of it uh, almost in tears I was being told what I feel is not real. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I thought it was a matter of educating. I wish I had the opportunity to chat with the professionals who were struggling to understand. And this is our conversation to them, you know, our way of saying in the simplest way possible, this is what we understand gender to be. This is what our clients have taught us about gender. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And just because I think we need to touch on it, um on some of the material and like political factors that um michael you were alluding to as well um mm. uh one of the things that is uh well perhaps the hardest thing for trans folk at the moment is lack of access to healthcare. that and the tran- yeah. broader transphobia um so that's one of the one of the reasons it's needed but also uh as you're saying Laura, a lot of people aren't trained in um in uh in talking about diverse gender identities, diverse gender experiences as well. So can you talk a little, speak a little bit about that, about how the book might um, be a contribution to, to, to this uh, kind of scarcity that we have at the moment? Sorry, not a contribution to scarcity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an, an abundant riposte to the scarcity that we have uh, <laughs> at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can, I can speak, I suppose, a little bit to... One of the things that I really noticed, so I trained as a counseling psychologist, um, uh, Laura is a a clinical psychologist. We had slightly different trainings and we trained in different countries in that way. I was aware, certainly, that was the only male on my course. Mm -hmm. So um, there were a couple of men who joined at the beginning, but they dropped out. So of sort of 10 people, I was the only guy. Mm -hmm. But gender was never talked about. Um, it was never mentioned. There was all sorts of different other things that we were trained about and so on and um, trained how to work with, et cetera, et cetera. But gender was never, never one of them. Um, and it was also like very obviously not there. So um, I presented my doctoral research, which was about gay male therapists' experience of working with men. And I presented it to the professor who ran the school and he said to me, "He said, I just don't understand what the point of it is, because isn't it isn't it just the same as um, like a, a man working with a woman?" Oh gosh! And I was like, "Wow!" I mean, this was ten years ago, but still. And also, when I presented that thing, you know, he was like, "What is it about you, gay people? You're always going on about sex." Um, Aye. and these kinds of things are and were being spoken about in a training ten years ago, but in trainings for psychologists. And I think you talk about the sort of the paucity or the desert or or whatever. There isn't an enormous amount written in in this in this kind of field. I mean, yeah. certainly as as um, um, Lara sort of talked about, and and you've contributed to the field yourself, Justin, but also uh, Meg John and and mm. Christina Richards and various other people who are writing in this kind of field. Mm. There are there is stuff out there, um, but not a great deal, I would say. And Alexi and Taffy has a book. Cover, yeah, don't they? yeah, um, friend of the show. Uh, I just, like to, just like to brag about that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> uh, we were just delighted that they, um, I mean, Laura is somebody who's much more comfortable at uh, just reaching out to you, going, hi, um, would you mind doing this for us? Laura, yeah, uh, if ever you want to do that for me, anytime, um, that'd
2: be great. <laughs> um, I'm shameless. So, <laughs> that's
0: the word I was looking for, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's quite, from speaking to um trans friends of mine who have either been uh uh who have either done therapy or have even trained in therapy they're often surprised at how uh, uh, either noticing some of the reticence the therapist has and like going there with certain topics or they're really surprised how little um they receive little training uh mm-hmm. they receive um around anything to do with gender um so I think that plus the you know the the incredibly long waiting lists uh for uh trans folk to receive uh, gender affirming health care mm. this book is an incredibly important really timely um uh resource so let's talk about um i mean my question here is well you know so the book is called but book is about gender affirmation What well, what does gender affirming therapy do uh, or mm-hmm. to make it a kind of uh, dear listener. To make it like a Deleuzo guitario question, we we'll say, "What square brackets else does gender affirming therapy do?" <laughs> um, we love to be uh, we love to be nerds on the show. So, um, and that's a very broad question, which is basically saying, "Tell me about all of your book." But tell me about all of your book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sure. Um... So it, it it is it is again something that we had to sit down and and think about, really. What is it that we're trying to achieve, what is our angle in supporting trans and non-binary folk um, or our style, right? It's also a matter of style. And and I guess it's it's been part, particularly with all the proposal of the bill in terms of conversion therapy, you know, that, uh, no, 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 trans folk and non-binary folk cannot be included in this bill because essentially this means that in therapy, their gender identity cannot be questioned. If you are to go to a gender therapist, for sure, you're going to be converted. You're going to come out of there really wanting to have uh, chest surgery or genital surgery. And uh, that is not uh, the case. (laughs) Um, So we put the client at the center of it right we don't have a test I cannot do an MRI and determine if a person is trans or non-binary there is no way for me a blood test nothing of that right the reality is that we need to assert whether if it's an assessment whether you've been feeling in this way for a prolonged period of time whether the things that you're doing are really uh, helping you feel better feel more present in your life in your body with your family with your friends and uh, and whether there are other reasons that are better explaining that you feel this way, you know? perhaps you you have any other conditions that may may get confused with gender. Well, we can help you tease that out. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we're just opening that same non-judgmental space that we were talking that we were able to have with one another as therapists trying to share and learn from the experiences of our clients so it's the same sit down and tell me what you feel about your body what is that like for you how does it impact what do you do to manage it what is the impact of misgendering and you know how what do you do when your parents misgender you? Can you correct them? Do you not? That's that place you at physical risk, perhaps. So we deal with a broad variety of self-image, body relation, sexuality, your place in the world, dealing with a stigma, and all of it where we let the client guide us in the direction that uh the most keen to, to explore. And a big part of our work as well. Is supporting people who are uh, not quite sure yet, right? They might come and they might say, actually, I don't know if there is a link between sexuality and my gender. You know, perhaps for me presenting in a certain clothes, it is linked to my sexuality rather than me being trans and that would be okay, right? We all have our ways of uh, getting turned on and if yours is to wear a particular kind of clothes, that's absolutely fine as long as you're not hurting anyone, right? Uh, For other people, it might be I've had a fluid sense of my gender for a long while, but I'm wondering actually if hormones are the right step because they're pretty permanent in my body and I worry that later on I might say, oof, I wish I still had a body that allowed me to shift between these parts of myself. Um. So confusion, and, and not stating it as a negative word, but rather as a, like, I'm really not sure, can be a part of it. And we can support our clients saying, okay, not this is what you have to do, but actually you told me that you don't like this or that this helped you and that this, da, da, da. what are your conclusions with all the evidence on the top of the table?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel... <clears throat> One of the things you, you, the the kind of the top of the question there, Justin, you were talking about um, amazing long waiting lists um, within the NHS, which are just wild to even consider that it's five more years to see someone that you might wait two years between appointments that you have to have, and this is just it's kind of mad. Um, one of the things that I think that Laura and I were very much kind of marinated in, and certainly I was back in 2010, when I first started training in this field, was that it's very, very specialist. So in 2010, the London Adult NHS Gender Clinic was a tertiary service. So you went to see your GP, then you had to be referred to a psychiatrist, who then referred you on to the gender clinic. So it was like several stages. It was such a specialist kind of like, was the most special of the special, special places that only... You know, people who'd been inducted into the third level of, you know, it was very kind of like walled off and only very special people got to go there after many, many years of being special. And so one of the things that we wanted to do um, with this book, and I suppose that's what Ara is saying, is just like, just democratize it's not so special yeah. we all have a gender identity that just sit down it's okay to be confused about something it's okay to explore something um and for us the definition of affirmative practice really is is very simple it's based on two things one is knowledge up so if i'm going to work with eating disorders i should read a few books on eating disorders i should know i shouldn't expect my client to explain what an eating disorder is to me i should right. get have the basic knowledge and the other is be reflexive So if I'm working with eating disorders, I need to think about my own relationship with food um, and how I am with food and how I use food and so on, rather than go, okay, I'm going to be an eating disorder specialist, but I'm not going to think about my own stuff. Um, It's really, it's all out there with the client. What we're saying in affirmative practice is, first of all, learn something and it's not that difficult to learn. It's not very complicated. And second, think about your own gender identity Um, because it's something that you share with the client. It's not like Trans and non-binary folk have some sort of gender stuff, and yeah. I don't. It's like, we all do. It's, it's a shared experience. I really like that. Um, and in that description,
0: um, the when the gender clinic was so, like, specialised, um, do correct me if I'm wrong about this, but there was the, I think it was called the Benjamin Effect, perhaps, was it, where, where trans folk had to kind of learn a kind of a rote set of this is what gender dysphoria means. And they had to present with the with this kind of certain like symptomology, I suppose, to a psychiatrist in order to get that referral. So there's a very narrow kind of like territorialized way mm-hmm. of becoming trans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's and so it's interesting what the the uh the discursive term gender dysphoria in that way was using that very biomedical kind of way in order that mm-hmm. trans folk could get uh treatment, could get healthcare. Um mm-hmm. But I love the way that that's completely flipped in the book. You do refer to um to gender to gender dysphoria, but as uh, social dysphoria, gender dysphoria, internal dysphoria, but also terms like congruence and incongruence. So it's kind of really opening up possibilities. Mm-hmm. um and as you say, that opens up that then opens up the possibilities for the therapist and the therapist. This is the therapy, even the right word. Uh, anyway the person in therapy uh <laughs> as well as any other healthcare practitioner reading it that we all have a relationship with gender it's not just this thing over there I found that really um was that a deliberate thing to kind of like to to take these kind of terminologies like this these like discursive terminologies like dysphoria and to kind of make them fuzzy and to kind of open them up uh, mm-hmm. in order that everyone can kind of relate to them
2: mm-hmm. I mean I guess that um not sure if it was a, a you know, a, a plan, <laughs> but because we meet so many people that they come with their own experiences, different people use different language. And so I guess that every time we hear a new term or the same term defined in a different way, we're forced to think about, okay, is this a new way of viewing it that maybe I didn't consider before? And um, coming to therapy, I think that one of the things that I found most traveling and that really helped me define whether I was being an affirmative practitioner or whether I was denying the experience of my client is when I found uh, people coming and saying, I hate myself. I hate my body. I hate my chest. I hate the way that people see me. I hate my genitals. And in a way, of course, the first thing is the compassion that you can feel towards the person and saying, well, this must be tremendously difficult. But I also question whether to be trans, do you really need to hate yourself? Mm. And who is saying this? Who is, right. who is, who is uh, pushing this narrative? Mm. And so reading the diagnostic manuals, particularly if we're going to the DSM, which is the one that is least updated now, mm. there is that sense that to be trans, to access interventions, you have to demonstrate a particular degree of hatred and disgust towards your body but the reality is that meeting different folk who came to therapy or who came to assessment they might some of them might say no you know what I don't hate my body I wish it was different of course and actually once I had HRT once I had surgery I feel so much better with myself so there's a proof that that uh, access to care really helped me but perhaps I am really good at shaping my reality in a way that i can accept that this is a source of this stress but i have coping strategies to deal with it Mm -hmm. or i can disassociate to cope with the almost traumatic feelings that this incongruence is causing me or i don't know i'm taking other strategies so yeah um and that has been i think for me as a practitioner tremendously important when working with my clients challenging to so what degree is this something that you could challenge psychologically or through self-relation, through uh, nurturing yourself, through asking your partner when you're having sex to say how beautiful your body is and how amazing it is or how masculine or feminine you look as we're having sex, right? And how much of it is actually a non-negotiable because it's something that comes from the core of yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I suppose I... Um... As you're as you're talking, Laura, um and I'm in that, that sense um, plugging my own chapter in the book, um, um, when we're thinking I, what I wrote about, and it's something that that Laura and I have kind of co-created over a while, um, and very much inspired by Alex and Taffy's gender trauma book, which I see they've just won an award for. Oh. Um, um, congrats, which, congrats, Alex. It's amazing. It's yes, Yay. absolutely. Modern, <laughs> Shout out to them for that. Um, but the idea of identity-based trauma is that that when we At a very basic level, when we hold an identity characteristic which is stigmatized, um, we feel shame and we try to hide it. And in order to hide it, we have to go through some kind of psychological gymnastics, which involves, in a sense, um, either covering it up or amputating in some way, but just getting rid of something. Um, And I need, you know, it ultimately leads to a, a question, which is who do I need to be to feel safe? Uh, in this scenario and that that becomes part of a broadly queer LGBT person's experience because they've grown up kind of like hiding that stigmatized bit. And I suppose for me that that thought kind of connects with what Laura is saying about hating yourself or whatever that that for a number of trans non-binary folk that that intensity of hatred is partly connected to the intensity of stigma that they may have felt about that. And what they then did. And so I suppose a lot of that chapter is looking at saying, okay, so what did you have to do to yourself to try and be safe? Yeah. And do you need how can you unpick that later on? Because you're now an adult, you're not um an eight or nine-year-old being bullied in the in the playground. What access, how can you access different parts of yourself to kind of put yourself back together to heal yourself? And as a kind of midwife to that, as a a therapist, how can you facilitate that happening for the client? Um,
0: Yeah, I've really, really enjoyed, I think it's probably the wrong word, but really, really values that, enjoyed and um, values that kind of approach. Because I think that there, to pick up on what you're both saying there, I think that there is this kind of like common sense narrative that uh, to be part of uh, any minority group, uh, but particularly in this case to be lgbtq is that to like somehow feel shame and hate yourself is like an essential part of it and that, that actually kind of almost proves an lgbtq you know that it becomes mm-hmm. a kind of an essential part of ourselves and i think that that is a, a possibly a really kind of a very unhelpful uh way of thinking because to that isn't going to be everyone's experience um to make people think that is that that has to be an essential part of the experience. If you're not experiencing that, you're not really LGBTQ, you know, there's that kind of, so discursively, I think it's, um, I think that that can be a real problem. But I think what your book does is say, well, no, the reason why we're feeling this, uh, that we ha- have these kinds of feelings are material, because we actually experience them in the world, you know, mm-hmm. we see them and feel them and so and that's where the shame is so the shame isn't this kind of essential part of the identity it's it's the experience of transphobia or the experience of homophobia or biphobia uh, and lack of access to resources and um and you know education it's how we're read and that that thing of uh, the fear of being clocked that uh, that you have a chapter about um and the and so the way out of it is the material it is to go it is to come back to the body it is to think how our body is helping us to survive how our body is helping us connect to connect with the world and then that way we can there are there are you're showing up ways out of um not ways of never experiencing shame but ways of dealing with it ways of coping with it and being yourself and uh, being with yourself and emerging more and more as, uh, into the world. So that uh, it's like a fair kind of where some of might what you what you've been. I think that's that kind of comes out of the book quite a lot for me.
1: And that's great to hear. I mean, yeah, because very much part of I suppose what we were trying to create together and and with Sky.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. and particularly Sky's uh, what the so Sky throughout the book uh, uh, they facilitated. Um, Conversations with with clients, right? And mm-hmm. to get some more of their experiences. So there's your experiences. So they are kind of like a Irving yalom esque kind of stories with you with your clients, which were where mm-hmm. those kinds of moments with clients really came alive. But there are also kind of separate sections which Sky collated um mm-hmm. uh which uh which actually draw on the experiences and ask people to talk about themselves. That was really uh in in what way do you think that might be a really helpful um
2: mm-hmm.
0: Part of
2: the resource? Um, well, I guess that it is helpful because it's unfiltered, right? You can you can directly uh, read and hopefully imagine the voices of the people that are speaking in these sections. Mm-hmm. It was very important, you know, as Sky was interviewing the different community members and the parents of trans folk uh, when she was coming back, and we were like, oh, this came up, and it was so interesting, and it's really informed our work as well you know it's really give us some nuggets of wisdom that we didn't have uh, and, and that perhaps we've expanded upon in different sections. Um, it's also I think a, a good way of um, of making reality that principle that was stated in, in WPATH in the World Professional Association of uh, Transgender Health which is nothing about us without us and this is why we felt it was very important to hear directly what um, Transcendental Binary Folk had to say as well as their loved ones Um, and so it's something that we really um, is really anchored the book as we said we got a wonderful Alexia Antahit to write the forward for Mm. us and it's so personal and so beautiful and it felt really rewarding to us to have someone with the amount of knowledge and activism that they carry out uh, validate uh, parts of our work. And we also had uh, Fox Fisher drawing that beautiful and very personal uh, cover. So again, it's, you know, I guess, you know, I, I I am sick of the hierarchy of the medical world and the psychological world of course we should hold healthy boundaries for our clients and for ourselves but we're all people so let's start with that principle Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Absolutely,
0: yeah and the what and as part of that i think that the thing that really came out for me i'm sorry it's a phrase i keep using all the time i've noticed but uh i'm being self-critical um What really came out for me uh is that it's just allowing gender to emerge uh in ways that it does. So there's quite a lot of and this kind of came out in in the quotes that uh, sky collated and, and brought in, but there's a lot of things like ambivalence and indifference and not sure and you know uncertainties that are allowed to be are allowed to remain, aren't there? That um mm-hmm. so uh for instance in things like the coming out chapter, you, you know, make it really clear that well we shouldn't have to come out you know coming out is uh something which we force minority groups to to do uh and it's essentially you know i despise national coming out day um or <laughs> whenever that is uh please stop that um but you know so it's, it's about this kind of well you don't have to come out you don't have to transition you can be where you are and th- there are ambivalences around well all the way through can you can you kind of talk a bit about that because I suppose when, we do, when we're talking about gender affirming I suppose because there is such a kind of a, a backlash against uh, uh gender diverse identities gender diverse folk it it must feel like we we might feel a bit anxious about putting in things that are where we're talk, where where clients and we're talking are, talk, are talking about kind of ambivalences or indifferences or unsureness Mm -hmm. about gender and did you feel how important did you feel that was to to kind of keep in and did you feel kind of like a a sense of like a a pressure to to kind of edit those out Or, or what are your thoughts about that
2: that's a very good question and I guess it sort of goes back to what you were asking in relation to you know um the, the continuum of you know between incongruence and hatred yeah. to, at the other end right yeah. so different people experience their body and the gender incongruence within it as more or less tolerable and they might have situations in their life that allow them or don't allow them to transition right so you might find yourself that you are i don't know 55 year old and you have young children and for you to transition would mean to potentially lose your family and maybe even custody of your children. you don't mm. know that right yeah. And the degree of dysphoria or the incongruence that you experience is let's say uh, six out of ten being 10 really intolerable. Mm. Perhaps you decide you know what I I can bear this. I prefer being around my children but if the degree of dysphoria is a nine out of 10, maybe this is driving you close to having suicidal thoughts or to have self-harming in in a variety of ways. So it might not be a decision you can take. You must do it for your own self-care. The sitting with that ambivalence, it's just, uh, it's very interesting. One of my super VCs sort of uh, came to one of the sessions and said, I've been working with this client for, I don't know how long, many, many months. And the client still doesn't transition. What am I doing wrong? (laughs) It's like, uh, you don't need to make anyone transition. You know, it's absolutely fine. It is hard to sit with someone who is not really sure what to do and where every week might be all about do I or do I not, you know, and you might even feel the, the push to say, ah, I just want to push you off this cliff so that something happens and you realize whether you do or you don't. Yeah. But it's important we're there to hold their hands and to let them do uh, make these decisions uh, about what what would be the right step for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think so. Uh, there's so many things firing off in my mind as mm-hmm. uh, as Lara was was talking there. One of which was this whole thing around cis normativity. Mm-hmm. So the idea that being cis is uh, the standard is better than any other gender identity so i may not be transphobic but i just kind of agree that being cis is is kind of like the baseline or the right way to do things and yeah. and it's okay if you're if you don't i mean it's not as good as me but it's you know that kind of idea mm. and if that and that's so pervasive i think in all of our conversations about gender in a, in a very unreflexive way that we assume, and also our clients assume, that the goal is to move from one gender, which is way over here, say a masculine gender, and then move as quickly and seamlessly as possible all the way over to the other side, right. say, into the feminine gender, and then disappear into that. And that that somehow, in order to be appropriately transfeminine, I have to be like a person. I have to kind of I have to be as far away from masculinity as possible and as according to all the standards of cis um bodies or beauty or anything, you know. And that's why I think in some ways, non-binary identities, as they've emerged much more as a much more strong and clearly defined way of being in the world, say in the last 10 or 15 years, and there's much more language around it, although it's obviously always been here, is that it 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 um and we we had to fight with the um publisher because they're like i'm not sure why you would have this word but it's what sky referred to as pure gender fuckery which is like it's (laughs) like this is it's not we're not accepting this this thing we're actually you know and we're not privileging it either um and so it's okay to not be okay it's okay to 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 kind of be in a sort of a space where we're not aping a binary straitjacket that we can kind of play around with that so and what then? The other sort of side of that thought then made me think about Yalom and, and existential therapy and the, the sort of idea of just holding a space where nothing's really concluded yet. Um, it's it's really awkward sometimes to to not kind of like, and in Laura was saying about her it's like to get a result and just sort of say, okay, <laughs> there we are, therapy's finished, happy trans person, tick, you know. Um, but that that. Just holding a space where people can be curious about their gender, which they may not get outside because maybe their family wants them to be super sure about transition, mm-hmm. so they have to pretend, in a sense, to be super sure and not bring any of their anxiety about it, because mm-hmm. that will be sort of jumped on potentially by others and going, "Oh, well, maybe you're not trans then." Um, yeah, and you have to be like a perfect trans um,
0: person. I like- like I was saying before, there's that the the discursive nature of what it is to be uh, trans is to hate your body, and unless you're experiencing it in a particular way, then you're not really trans, which reminds me of Meg John Barker's uh, crab bucket analogy and rewriting the rules that the, it's difficult. So what you're talking about that with there with um, Irving Yalom and existential therapy is like you're holding that space for the crab to be on the beach without feeling like they have to get into a bucket. Because <laughs> when they go into a bucket, it feels nice for a bit but then when they want to get out all the crabs bring them down into the bucket and that's what discourse does which is why so which is i think one of the reasons why it's really uh helpful is that you also you bring in the body so it's um so uh I'll use a nerdy phrase here so it's material discursive so it's the it, it's uh you're talking about all the stories that we receive around around gender and how gender is produced uh and how we're sometimes violently coerced into gender, particularly I'm thinking, uh, cis, um, uh, cis for example. But mm-hmm. you know, speaking for myself, I'm violently coerced into the gender that I am. Um, uh, but so you know, there's th- that discursive element to it. But you're, but by bringing in the body by talking about, um, things like interoception, exteroception, press, uh, help me out here proprioception uh, proprioception that's the one okay. and talking about our relationship with the mirror and mm-hmm. things like makeup but also talking about hormones and hormone levels and uh and uh vasocongestion so when we get arousal in our genital area or mm-hmm. uh, the parasympathetic nervous system all of these things can actually help people's idea or agenda to emerge right because it's the it's this kind of the body and the discourse working together in in ways that are complex and interesting mm-hmm.
2: yeah absolutely i think uh yeah what in 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 the chapter of the um the client's relationship with the mirror this to me was one of the first things that I was fascinated when I started working with uh, trans and non-binary folk. I was like, what is it? Everyone comes with the same narratives. You know, it's really difficult to look at myself. I feel like a floating head. I avoid anything that happens from the neck down. And so I sort of decided to look a little bit more into it. And my my core question that drove that uh Research, both talking with my clients, but also in reading all the materials that was unrelated to gender, was how can anyone perceive incongruence? Well, what is it? Do you know, do you have an internal alarm that goes off? Uh, what what does it look like? And so that's how I came about to to uh, using the senses. I imagine that's how we perceive anything, right? We perceive the sense of cold, or if it's raining, or anything like that, through our senses. And we taught the faith uh, the five basic ones but we tend to omit those of interoception, proprioception, and exteroception. So very briefly, what I sort of talk in this chapter is that the sense of uh, interoception allows us to um, perceive internal organs. So for example, our heartbeat or when we're hungry. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we were to translate these sensations to something that is more gendered, perhaps we could talk about pain period or we could talk about erections like you were saying the blood flowing towards the genital area so that's something that is a reception allows us to perceive and so you could then sort of say okay i can see how someone could say when i have an erection i don't feel quite myself there is some discomfort or we could talk about um Exteroception, which it is, is the sense that allows us to feel our body in its environment. So if it's raining, if it's windy, your skin will communicate this to you. And a lot of the narratives that we hear with perhaps trans feminine people is how when they tried feminine clothing, which generally is softer to the touch, more silky and so on, they felt affirmed. There was something about it that really clicked with them or for trans masculine people when they were using a uh, bra, suddenly this brought attention towards my chest and this wasn't nice at all, right? So my Mm -hmm. skin allowed me to say there is something that is not quite clicking, like like a stone in your shoe kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And lastly, proprioception, which I think that is the one that most people would be familiar, right? Which is uh, how your body moves in the environment. And generally queer people are generally clogged or identified as queer because of the way they might move right you might be non-conforming in the way that you might be more feminine you might have more mannerisms Mm. uh or you might be more masculine and traditionally a tomboy Mm. So when we think about all of these things, when we think about senses like the sense of a smell, again, this morning, Justin and, and, yes. and Michael and I were talking before we started this recording about how I put a little bit of perfume to come into the podcast, which is ridiculous <laughs> because you guys cannot uh, smell me, but I assure you it's delicious. Um, <laughs> uh, but again... It is a feminine smell that I'm wearing currently, it's something more fruity, it's something, uh, I don't know, more summery. And these are uh, notes that we are communicating to other people about our gender, in the shampoo that you use, in the moisturizer that you use. And so to me, it's unsurprising that trans folk would arrive to a point in their life where it's like, it's just like everything feels somewhat discomforting. Is something that it's not quite me. And to me, this really linked a lot with what a lot of people are aware of, which is that about 10% of people who are trans are also gender, di- uh, sorry, neurodiverse. They're autistic, their ADHD is very, very common. And this is about 10 times more likely to co-occur than in the general population. And so what we know about uh, neurodiverse people is that they experience this uh, sensory hypersensitivity towards all the senses. So in a way I thought, okay, then maybe you know neurodiverse folk have a greater ability to sense this incongruence. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but there are studies that establish that neurodiverse people also struggle, struggle to locate these feelings a lot more. So in the past month, I already wrote two um, two trans clients who came to me and say, For the longest time, I couldn't differentiate hunger and thirst. I didn't know which one was which. Or I was feeling unwell and I didn't know, oh, it's actually that I'm hungry. Uh, The the distress is there. So to me, that's one of the clues when people ask me, why is there so many uh, autistic people who are also trans? What is happening there? I do believe there might be a connection with
0: this. Yeah. But even there, um, it's the, it's, it's, when I was, when you're talking about, uh, uh, interoception, exteroception, pros uh uhception pros, uh, and, <laughs> and the third one. Um <laughs> I was kind of thinking, you know, um yeah, if 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 we'd have known about this a hundred years ago, would Freud have said that everything is just about the unconscious? Right, you know, a lot of things that can be kind of said, this is the kind of unconscious, and this kind of reveals us. Well, actually, when we think about um neurodiversity and we think about these um these senses that we weren't aware of and ways that we relate to our body and have that that just kind of knowing or that feeling of discomfort that we can't quite locate you know we might that might previously been said well this this is in the realm of the unconscious and let's talk about this actually when we when we can say well it's about the body and um the body responds to certain things and we can help to understand our bodies and connect with our bodies in particular ways by doings by using using by clothing smell shampoo all of those things have this relation to what actually how our gender might emerge in really interesting ways
1: absolutely um, and i think it's a sort of in some sense <clears throat> one of the things that we also think about when we think about gender and, and lara lara and i've written about it and it just I, I guess it comes from one's own experience but also reflection reading about it that um gender is kind of bi-directional so it's something that we do, but by doing it, we create it also. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always this this sort of, um, I think, idea really in, in Judith Butler's thing or also mm-hmm. in Rowan Connell writing about masculinities, which is like, you know, masculine men <clears throat> drink hard, play football, get into fights, you know, aggressive and so on like that. Or, and you know, an unmasculine men arrange flowers and cry at romantic comedies, mm-hmm. you know, or is it the case that people who arrange flowers and cry are, are mas- uh, at romantic comedies become unmasculine men and people who beat other people up become masculine men? You know, it's like, uh, which, what's creating what? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think,
0: and um, again, it is that kind of, uh, it's the, it's how things emerge and it's what, and what do we notice? So, uh Listeners to the show know that I've been training in solution focused therapy myself. I'm not I'm not a therapist, but I've been training in solution focused And I really like in that we're just encouraged to get clients to describe their preferred future and and to describe this kind of um how that looks in relation to others. And so how and how that so how we we might imagine someone's best hopes to emerge in 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 conversation, in reaction to, in response to. A preferred future with the people around them in that day, and I think that mm. that's a a useful way of um, thinking about emergence and just how uh, you know I put on a I put on my you know my new perfume, which makes me smell like a sex smell like a sexy priest. <laughs> I go out into the world. What does that do? Okay, well I'm remembering that I'm wearing it. I'm my shoulders are kind of back a little bit more. I'm kind of looking my heads up a little bit more. I'm kind of noticing the world. I'm feeling a little bit kind of you know not necessarily sexy but you know kind of like confident and mm-hmm. uh, so I'm noticing my breathing that you know I'm aware that I'm breathing into my belly and that I've got this kind of good posture and walking my arms are swinging kind of thing and all of these are allowing a uh, my own sense of like masculinity to emerge out into the world mm-hmm. um uh I went to the dentist the other day for the first time in way too long and uh so no longer feeling shame about my teeth means that when i smile i can smile a little bit more Mm -hmm. or i don't feel in any way subconscious uh, about having a big laugh in case people see my horrendous wretched teeth which are actually pretty fine so and in that way i've emerged a little bit more into the world and it's the thing that i'm doing so that's the really like the really valuable thing that i'm guessing from your book is that it is that it's what the body can do and what it is that we can do in order to um for us to kind of emerge alongside the discourses about how how we are meant to do gender and how we're supposed to do gender and um uh mm-hmm. just, yeah so let's let's go towards the kind of the the the, the final point of the show where we think about the you know takeaways for the for the listener so um I mean, basically, anyone listening to this show who works in healthcare should probably get this book, right? So, yes. yeah.
2: And anyone who is curious, I guess, about gender, I think that... The- the publishing house didn't allow us to make it so broad that it would be for everyone Hmm. so we sort of targeted towards a healthcare practitioners and anyone who works with trans folk in that way but I think that we've managed to make it accessible to that anyone that is curious about gender identity and what happens inside the therapy room or even I would imagine some trans folk themselves might come out of it saying okay maybe i didn't think about this and i can challenge this conception of my body or i can do this exercise um so we hope that it would be useful to anyone who is curious enough to to read it
0: yeah yeah yeah. if you're a fan of irving yellow folks (laughs) uh dear listener you should read this because it's you know it's like that plus um how to you know um how to specifically navigate gender it's really really interesting
1: um thank you yeah and I, think, go on, Michael. I was going to say for us, it was it was also just this sort of idea of um, creating or or making a space where people could explore things. Um, and I guess one of the other things that we were going to talk about, maybe you're we going to ask us about was this sort of sense of how we create these spaces. Mm-hmm. So the book, in some sense, is space. And, and Alex Antafi has been um, kind enough to describe it as a kind of a friend to you. You know, it could be a friend to you or, or sort of a guide um along the way and I think one of the things that came out when we'd finished writing the book last year um and we're starting to kind of put it to bed if you like we're like well it doesn't I don't want to just a stop here we want to to continue the conversation somehow and you know mm-hmm. how could we continue to build and create spaces that maybe is inspired by the book but can can have a life beyond it um mm-hmm. I suppose that's why we decided to, to start building um, a web presence together that that is mm-hmm. born out of the book but hopefully will be will be bigger than it um
0: mm-hmm. yeah so let's uh that let, this sounds like a really good opportunity to plug this let's talk <laughs> about it let's plug it <laughs> so it's called a firm right so what's the so so what's the name of the website
2: it's affirm.lgbt. dot lgbt we're very proud that we got that domain we didn't know even that it was available but oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah yeah, so we've we created a firm. At, we are very early stages. So at the moment, uh, anyone who comes and visit the website will see some uh, very well posed photographs of us, <laughs> and they can sign up. But we wanted to create a, what we call the affirm community, and so we will be. Um, uh, uploading different training videos on different themes, some of it inspired by the book, some of the themes beyond it. And we're also going to be holding talk fest. So, basically, live sessions where anyone can join. Mm. Um, so, it could be to talk about, you know, I was curious about this in the training, or there's something about gender I would like to explore. Or even if you are a clinician, I learned this through a client and I would like to share it with someone else, or I would like support. Um, and so it's it's important to us to create these spaces and to shift the general attitude, particularly of practitioners, towards working with non minority folk.
0: I think it might just as to circle right back to the beginning of the show. I think this kind mm-hmm. of thing is just really useful for dealing with that anxiety of am I the am I getting it right and that mm-hmm. everything is at stake on these on these conversations. It's yeah. As, yeah. Um, yeah yeah so uh so you can go there you can join the club you can sign up um and it's a very nice looking website i have to say
1: thank Uh, you
0: i love the typeface and the colors and everything very nice um but you can do that dear listener by yourself you don't need me to teach you how to use a website (laughs) affirm.lgbt. um visit there immediately i'll also put a link to that in the show notes and also a link to uh where you can get the book um Unless there's anything, okay. So I'll use the use the final question that we use in solution focused uh, 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 conversations. Was there anything that I haven't asked about that you wish I'd have asked about? Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. <clears throat> I uh,
2: I get I have one. Okay, I have go on, one. Go on. Very yeah. briefly. Yeah. Um I think that by putting ourselves in this book. We're also inviting other people to put themselves in the work that they do. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that we are encouraging vulnerability because this is what we're asking from our clients all the time. Just be vulnerable. You haven't cried enough in therapy. This mm-hmm. means you're not feeling it, right? And so yeah. in a way, we want to be vulnerable. So we want to be real people to everyone that is out there. And so we hope that, um, yeah, we, we're hoping that safe space and that vulnerability come through
1: yeah yeah i wouldn't um add anything to that i think it's a it's a it's a nice place to to end particularly because as you say we we put um vulnerability into um the therapeutic work and we're inc- encouraging clients to be to be vulnerable we still need to to hold boundaries as as practitioners in in being the therapist but um allowing some positionality i think is is key particularly i think in in the kind of queer space. I think it's a very different kind of space um, that we create for LGBTQ plus clients where aspects of identity have been so stigmatized that to be able to bring oneself and uh destigmatize and de-mythologize um, if you like that uh, that thing while still holding a, a space for the client to explore I think is is a really part of how we see the the practice and hopefully it comes out in the book and hopefully it comes out in the website and hopefully it's come out in the conversation today
0: yeah i hope so too well um lara and michael thank you so so much for joining me and uh thank you sky as well and i've sent here a, a really enjoyable book in case that hasn't come across <laughs> i really <laughs> i really enjoyed uh the book it's such a useful resource thank you so much for joining me thank you thank you, you. And if you've enjoyed this show, please consider supporting the show via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture, sex, relationships. Just a pound a month keeps the show on the road, pays me to make the show and search the show and also uh, pay freelance guests to come on the show. And um, if you can't afford that at the moment, I know that we're all skint, cost of living crisis and all that, please, if you could share the show, that would be really, really useful, uh, either privately or on your social media networks. And also maybe leave us a five-star review wherever you can leave reviews for podcasts. I know sometimes you can and can't leave reviews for podcasts, apps on podcast apps. But uh, yeah, just share the show, make noise and uh, tell everyone how great it is. I'd be really, really grateful. Um, I forgot to mention over on the Patreon, there are extra shows as well. Um, various tidbits and I am planning some a whole new set of resources to go up there very soon. Very, very soon. Um, Okay, so that's it for me for now. Hope to speak to you again soon. Bye.